I appreciate the Gideon ministry so much I can't even tell you. I've heard so many stories over the years of lives that have been touched by the Gideons. I remember when I was a fifth grader before I was saved, a Gideon came to my school and made the case before our principal that while it was illegal to pass out Bibles to students in a public school, there was nothing stopping him from setting them up on a table so that as we left we could with our own free will grab them. And uh, I think I took five. I don't know what I did with them, but I like free stuff. Um, still half the reason I go to the BMA meeting, so I can go and get the free stuff in the, in the area. Well, hey, uh, Brother, Brother Jerry mentioned something about our m- mission and what we're doing, and it kind of actually picks up with what I talked about last week in some regards to what is our purpose for being here as a church. I said I'm here for two reasons. Every morning when, or every Sunday morning whenever we come together to be a church, there's two things that I'm here to accomplish. To edify and to multiply. That means that if you're here, a part of my purpose is that if you don't know Jesus, that you would come to know Him by hearing the truth proclaimed. If you do know Jesus, My mission is that you would grow in maturity, in Christian maturity, to a place that you get, that you go out into the world, and that you would reproduce yourself. It does not stop. When we talk about missions and goals and objectives and these kinds of things, oftentimes what we have in mind is what a goal means in an organization. We have jobs, and that's the mentality that we have. A good goal has a timeline and a completion date. I have news. Our mission has no timeline and no completion date. Until Jesus comes back and calls us home, we will be here to edify and multiply. And we're going to keep doing that until that glorious day that we all get to be home together. We're going to continue growing in knowledge and in Christian maturity. And we are going to continue reproducing ourselves in seeing that other people can be edified by God's Word. Now with that said, I think it's helpful just to clarify that objective as we get started this morning. I have less time than usual, and I'm thankful for that. So we're going to dive right into the Word. If you have your Bibles this morning, open with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll be picking up where we left off last week looking at the life of Nehemiah and the way that God has chosen to use him. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for calling us together this morning to worship you, to study your word. God, as we come here, we don't come here to hear a lecture, to grow intellectually. We come here to be edified. God, we come here to be multiplied. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to set aside any distraction that we've brought with us to your sanctuary. God, help us to clear our mind of all burdens. God, help us to focus this time on you. Lord, I pray that you would prepare my heart to hear the truth that you have before me in your word. I pray that you would give me the vision that I do not possess, the knowledge that I have not obtained and the encouragement that I desperately need to follow in obedience to what you have given to us. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. And the Bible says, reading from Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, all the way through to the end of the chapter in verse 20. 
Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The first thing that I want to point out where we're coming from, remember Nehemiah has just gone on a nighttime expedition in secret around the walls of Jerusalem to survey the work that needs to be done. And after coming back, we see him immediately casting a vision before the people of what God has called him to do. Remember, all the way back, however long it was ago, whenever he was back in Susa, the capital city, as the cupbearer of the king, God had laid on Nehemiah's heart some burden, something that was there that not everyone had. There was something that Nehemiah was convicted about beyond just serving God and being a man of God. There was something that was convicting in his life that caused him to want to pick up, leave Susa, go to Jerusalem, and rebuild the wall. What's interesting about this is that this is a time, if you remember, we've already made at least two attempts to rebuild the wall, and they've both failed. But Nehemiah, hearing word from his brother that the city lied in ruin, he didn't just hear that the city hadn't been rebuilt, but he heard that God's people were in trouble. He heard that there was shame he heard that there was weakness. He saw that a city that was supposed to be representative of God's provision and protection on this earth for His people lied in ruins, and it stirred him. It made him want to do something about it. And this isn't an easy job, and I can't undersell how difficult the job that lies before Nehemiah is. In our text this morning, we already see some of the opposition starting to stir up against him. Not to mention the discouragement of the people that he's getting ready to lead to rebuild this wall. So Nehemiah comes to the people and his first words aren't just telling him what he's going to do. But he is encouraging the people to see what they have missed. The walls have been falling down for quite some time up until this point. They've been lying in ruin for years. Gardens had already started to take root. You could lay a picnic table over the top of them and eat lunch on top of the rubbled walls of Jerusalem. The people that had lived there had grown so accustomed to seeing what they saw that they didn't see the disgrace. And maybe if they did, at least we could say that they had grown accustomed to living in disgrace. God's people, protected and provided, were living in the provisional city of Jerusalem. 
under the authority of the Persian Empire in disgrace. A good leader sees what the people miss. A good leader sees what the people have missed. So often when we talk about the church and its function and the things that the church is doing, we say, well, the church is doing just fine. We're all still here. We're still gathered. Have you missed something? What happens, statistically speaking, to our children whenever they're raised in church? They go off to college never to be seen again. The church has become as complacent as the people of Jerusalem, accepting disgrace as the status quo and turning a blind eye to it. And I don't mean this, or I don't mean to say this as an alarmist. I mean to say this so that we can really evaluate ourselves because we have a blind spot when we want to say things are going well and we aren't facing the truth. The church has an objective to edify and to multiply. How edified are we? Are you more mature today than you were this time last year as a result of being a member of a church, as a result of being a member or a, a disciple of Christ? What about multiplying? Have you shared your testimony with somebody? I love being a Baptist that is associated with other Baptist churches that has the ability to contribute to missions all across the world. I love hearing stories of testimonies of ministries that are flourishing in other parts of the world, in other parts of the country, in other parts of the state. I love being a member of a church that is actively involved in planting another church in Alma, Arkansas. There's so many great things, but my biggest complaint is that God's people have become so complacent that they've placed their responsibility to multiply themselves and relegated it to other ministries that aren't serving where they're at. We have to stop looking at missions as a fund that we contribute to. We are partners in ministry who share the work of ministry and it does us no good to plant a church in Alma and not be sharing the gospel in Greenwood. We cannot relegate the authority that Christ has given to His church. We can only partner with those who believe the truth as we believe it so that we can share the good news. When we forsake that responsibility, it's no wonder we look around and without much grit are able to see the trouble that we are in. Our work is cut out before us. I don't think things are going to get easier for churches in the future. Looking at public policy, 
I think it's more likely that churches are going to experience even more difficulty in the future. Most likely, I think within my lifetime, we'll see churches lose their tax-exempt status. For the basis of holding to the truth of Scripture, we cannot waver and we cannot take a position of weakness. We have to move forward. And we have to move forward from the position of strength that God has given us. Our objective isn't to be a well-functioning organization. It is to be a well-functioning organism that serves the community we have been called to. Nehemiah had been called to Jerusalem because that's the place God told, laid a burden on his heart to go. We're all here in Greenwood, I assume, because God's placed us here. In fact, I know because God's placed us here. There is work to be done. Let us not grow accustomed to disgrace. I want to point something else out. I said that a good leader often sees what the people miss. But a good leader doesn't come to everyone with a problem and no solution. That's just a pot stirrer. A good leader comes with a solution too. I want you to look at what Nehemiah says. He says, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. The city lies in disgrace because the walls are down. Let's put the walls back together. We're not saying it's not going to take work or effort or sweat, but it can be done if we do it. A good leader comes with a solution. I want you to imagine um, you know, the way Nehemiah is written. We have some difficulty. Most likely this comes from Ezra is actually the one writing this, looking at the journals that Nehemiah had, and so there's some longer quotations from Nehemiah's personal diary. But there's a lot missed out in terms of what the people would actually be experiencing whenever Nehemiah comes to them. Ezra came some, I don't even remember the timeline, how long ago Ezra came before this and attempted to build the wall and it was shut down because the people in the neighboring area said, hey, you're trying to revolt against the king. And, and so the city continued to lie in ruins. The people accepted it. Here comes Nehemiah and he says, let's build these walls together. We're sitting in disgrace. Let's do something about it. And this is the part, I love this part. Because I think about what the people would have said. Because if I would have been in Jerusalem at this time, and I heard somebody from Susa come and say, hey, let's build the walls, imagine their response. Tough luck, dude. We tried that once. And actually, before Ezra came, we tried it once before that. I don't think it's going to work. Oftentimes in churches, whenever we talk about picking up new projects or reinvigorating ourselves or getting passionate about serving God again instead of sitting back in a reclined stance in a pew, everyone says, whoa, hold up. I'm just not excited about that. Can't we do something else? You know, I, uh, 
you presented this idea, and I think it's a good idea, but I think it'd be better for us to wait just a little bit longer. Would you mind if we just maintain the status quo just a little bit longer? We've got a good status quo. Can we hold on to it? I have a question. What is the status quo when our neighbor doesn't know Jesus? When houses down the road from this church have people living on it who will spend the rest of eternity in hell? What is the status quo when our children will grow up to go off and to never come back to serve God's kingdom in a church? What is the status quo when I've been sitting in a pew all my life and I haven't matured beyond understanding the basic fundamentals of what God is doing in our lives? When I don't understand the nature of the church? When I won't spend time making sense of what God's presented before me and asking for His understanding? When I won't yield my own privileges and my own passions and my own desires on the altar of God so that I can bend in obedience to what he has told us. What is the status quo? There is no status quo that is acceptable in the ministry of God's kingdom. We are either pushing forward or we are failing. There is no status quo. Second point, we notice that first Nehemiah encourages the people. The second thing we see is the people turn around and they immediately make application from it. Look there in verse... Um, oh, actually, it's not verse 18. We'll keep going. It's the middle of verse 18. The people b stand up and they start to strengthen their hands to one another so that they can rebuild the wall. It's one thing to be inspired by the truth and to realize that we have a burden or that we're in a state of trouble. It's another to actually do something about it. We put our hands together and we prepare to do the work. We don't stop supporting ministries, but we start taking our partnership in those ministries more seriously. We realize that when we contribute to missions across the world, Gideon's ministries across the nation and across the world, we realize that when we do that, we aren't just sending a check so that they can do what they do, but we're also telling them we've got Greenwood covered. We're going to do the work that you're doing here. I'm going to take the gospel to my neighbor. I'm going to be persistent in looking for opportunities to share the ways that you've worked in my life with my neighbor. I want to do life with people. I'm going to open up my home to people so that I can build real relationships with real people so that they can see the real way that you've changed me. I'm going to look for opportunities for your name to be glorified. I'm going to put my hands together. I'm going to prepare. Well, actually, it's not even that. Because it isn't, I think it's Ephesians 2.29 tells us that there's already a work that's been prepared before us. 
I don't even have to do the work of preparing. I'm going to be obedient to do what you've already prepared before me. And I'm going to quit hiding behind my insecurities. I'm going to quit hiding behind my excuses. I'm going to start looking the realities in the face, saying that we are in trouble, but there is a solution if we will do the work. You know, there are so many places you could be a part of serving God's kingdom in this church. There's more than I could probably even think of, but I did mention recently the organization of ministry teams. Something that's different about the church that stands out from any other organization you'll ever see is we do not provide a service. Every member of a church has a responsibility to be a part of making it function. And a church doesn't work unless that's the case. I've asked you the past several weeks, what have you been burdened towards? Maybe it's one of these ministry teams, our hospitality team. What can we do to be ready for the next time a visitor comes into our church to make them feel welcomed? Do you maybe feel burdened to be a part of that? I think it'd be as simple as standing out in the foyer and greeting them with a warm smile handing them the church bulletin instead of letting them figure out where to pick them up and answering any questions that they have. What about our social media team? Creating conversations and reaching out to people. Do you know how many people we can reach? I think I saw some stats, and I don't follow it very closely, but in this past week there was a 48% increase in in engagement, that's over 300 people that have been reached through social media alone. That's low-hanging fruit. And all we have to do is get a little bit organized around it. Deanne's done a great job of, of kind of laying some groundwork and some framework around what that looks like. She needs help. Michelle's done a wonderful job of helping out and I, I've you guys pray for especially Michelle because she lives with me and when I have ideas I say hey can you do this and she does I have to be careful not to treat her like a secretary because she'd be a great one maybe you've been called to be part of that hey what about that community outreach team I was talking about you think a couple of folks could get organized man and a woman and two-person teams to go out and to actually see neighbors around the church? To organize events that we could actually be involved in, in reaching our community? What about relieving some of these people who have become fatigued and tired in serving in Sunday school classes year after year? Do you think you could maybe step up to the plate of being an assistant teacher just to sit in there with them? Being a substitute from time to time? It's not hard to be a teacher. You just have to be fat, faithful, available, and teachable. If you're faithful in the Word, you can pour from the overflow of what God's given you. If you're available and you have the time, I think you'll make a really great teacher. And if all else fails, as long as you're teachable, we can correct anywhere you go wrong.
We'll keep moving in the text this morning. We're fighting the clock. We find Nehemiah first encourages the people. Second, the people move straight into application. And what we find next is the opposition, which we skipped over some weeks ago, but that opposition is certainly there. One might call Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the unholy trinity. Here they are. These men, strangers to Jerusalem, but they were influential in the area and uh, somewhat privileged, maybe played a role in Ezra's time of halting or ceasing the productive work of rebuilding the wall by saying exactly what they say here, are you rebelling against the king? Already. Nehemiah's just presented the vision. He's just said, hey, we've got a problem and we have the means to do something about it. I've been with the king and the king's given me all the provisions that we need. He's, he's given me permission to do this. He's made me uh, governor of this area. And so we have the authority to move forward. And, and, and not only that, but I have all the lumber that we need. Because I got it from the king's forest, because he gave me a letter to do it, because under God's provision, everything that we needed to do, what was laid on my heart, was provided for us, because God's great. And he keeps providing in obedience so that we can follow him. Whenever we're burdened with something, if it's really his will, he affirms that burden by opening the doors. And here Nehemiah says, the doors are open to us, let's get to work. And the people roll up their sleeves and they say, we're ready, and immediately follows opposition. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Hey, don't do that. First, they make fun of them. They jeer at them. Second, they, it, this is really rather threatening. Are you rebelling against the king? You know, a good leader remembers that any time work is being done God's way, there will be opposition. Any time... Work is being done the way God has called us to do work. There will be opposition. You know, the most dangerous time in a Christian's life is whenever they first make a, a proclamation of accepting Christ as their Savior. You know, before that time, Satan, the enemy, the adversary doesn't have much to work at. He's already got you. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't even have to keep you discouraged. He just has to keep you confused. The world doesn't have to do anything. They've already got you. You're going to buy into everything that they give you, every, every uh, wavering and deceptive philosophy and everything that comes and is presented before you. You're trapped and you're, you're in a... There, there's no work needed. But the moment we say, I'm going to stand up, and for the first time in my walk as a Christian, I'm going to take it seriously. For the first time, I want to take God up. And I'm going to take my faith seriously. I'm, I want to learn to study the Bible on my own. I want to make prayer a priority. I'm actually going to lead my family like I haven't done this entire time because I've too, been too embarrassed to ask them and come, to come pray with me. I'm actually going to lead my family in prayer regularly, in Bible study regularly. I'm actually going to live my life the way God tells me to do it. Get ready. 
Because while the devil didn't have much to fight for before, he certainly has something to war against now. And you have nothing to fear because Christ is more powerful than him. And the Bible tells us that in our day of glory, we will be more powerful than even the angels. The adversary might come against us. We might see more opposition. We might see more discouragement. We might see more discourse in our lives. But that's not the time to back down. That's the time to be resilient. We might see more public policy passed that makes it more difficult to share the... You know, I, I, I think it's so funny that the, the Gideons can't share... They, they can't share those Bibles in classrooms. I thought about the ingenuity that it took to lay those on a table for my fifth grade class to grab as we walked out of school. We're going to keep being creative. We'll keep being resilient. Because the work that is cut out before us is more important than any obstacle that can lay in our path. Seeing people saved, coming to know a Savior that loves them and cares about them, that loved them before they were even born, before they were even conceptualized. That made the entire world. I love looking at the creation story because I wonder, God, why did you leave us in, all, in this state? Why didn't you just make us without sin? And he did. And then it was our sin. That, but, but why would you do this to us? And it all points to the bigger picture that he wants a relationship with us that, that works within the bounds of us being obedient to him. He created us knowing all of the heartbreak, all of the heartache, all of the disobedience, the cycle and the repetition of faltering and faithfulness to God throughout the entire Bible, the cycle that we read about. He created us knowing all of this would happen because one day he's provided a way that we could spend eternity with him. And he's revealed to us every secret that we need to get there. He's given everything that we need right here before us this morning. And we get discouraged by the littlest things. Do you see the trouble that we are in? Don't you see that we can do something about it? It starts with us. And we need each other. Because when we start to hit those obstacles and that discouragement and those battles and those, that real resistance that comes whenever we decide to be faithful for the first time, what, what we need is for that faithful brother or sister to come behind us and to say, I've been where you're at. I know what you're going through. And God will see you through the way that he has seen me through. And he's placed me here so that I can help carry the burden that you're carrying. So that we can be that person for each other. So that we can be faithful together. Let me end this morning on a positive note because it's not just the opposition that comes here. But I want to look at Nehemiah's response to this unholy trinity. Verse 20, Nehemiah responds to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you 
have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And this is in front of everybody. Let's look at where he starts off. I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. If you think the problem that I have presented to you this morning is going to be solved by the sorry folk that are gathered together in this room this morning, you are wrong. There's not an individual, there's not a collection, there's not a church big enough, there's not one person that can gather that is strong enough or powerful enough to actually deal with the obstacles that we are facing. The God of heaven is the one who will do the work. And He will do that work through our obedience to Him. The God of heaven is the one who will make us prosper, and we are His servants. And so we will arise, and we will do the work that we have been called to do. But as for you, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The city walls have been fallen for a long time, and while you might have been the influential who have raised up through the social classes and and maybe even played a role in stopping the rebuilding of the wall in in effort phase two of, of, of in Ezra's time, get out of here. If you're going to hold us up, just get out of here. You don't have a historical claim to this land. You do not have rights or privileges in God's kingdom unless you are obedient to Him and yield yourself to Him. So get out in front of everybody. I can't imagine the encouragement that it would have been to be sitting in the crowd and to see this new leader stand up to the opposition with firmness, with integrity, and with the authority of God behind him. This morning, there is nothing more powerful or more capable of stopping the kingdom's work In fact, there is nothing in this world that can keep God's mission from being achieved. In fact, regardless of what we think or what we read in the news, God is still in control of all things. He's never stopped. Well, sometimes it's difficult to admit that the circumstances around us happened within God's sovereignty. It is always encouraging to remember that He will see us through until the day that He calls us home. I said that our objective for meeting together as a church is to edify and to multiply. This morning, if you've been saved, I hope you feel empowered and emboldened to go out and to reproduce yourself. 
to realize that the work that God has called us to do is not a relegation of authority to any entity, any parachurch ministry, or even your pastor. It is an objective and an imperative that has been given to you. However God's called you to do that, however He's burdened your heart, whether it's in service of the church, the creation of some new ministry, something else, whatever it is, would you get up and do something about it? And if you think you're too young, too insignificant to actually start something that's, that could actually cause somebody to be saved, I want you to remember that it's a little Gideon Bible thrown up on the top of a building that saw two people be saved to the Lord. If you're here this morning and you have doubts about the things that I'm talking about, if you think God's not actually in control because things are spinning in a direction I can't imagine, If you're here this morning thinking, hey, I've been coming to church with my parents my whole life. I don't know if I actually believe the things that are being taught. I want to challenge you this morning to not be like the ignorant who decide that it's creative or different to rebel and to look at something different. I want to challenge you this morning to go and actually look and figure out what God's presented before us. Because I believe that if you look at the Bible with any sense of genuine curiosity, God reveals truths to you that prove over and over again the authenticity of His inspired, infallible, and authoritative Word. I'll ask our worship team to come up. I ask you to think about the things that I've presented to you this morning. And I ask that if you'd like to respond in any way, wherever you're at, if you want to come up here, if you want to share something with the church, if you want to be identified with this body, I just ask that you would respond in obedience. Let's pray. Our Lord, I thank You for the time that we have to worship You, to reflect on Your truth. God, I ask that as I shut my mouth, that You'd help me to remember that You use the weak and the flawed. God, I pray that Your Spirit would speak more truth than I'm capable of speaking into our hearts this morning as we reflect. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond in obedience to you. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray.